How many of you have siblings? Raise your hand. Fair amount of you. Out of curiosity, how many of you are the oldest sibling? A few more hands down and stuff like that. How many of you have gotten into arguments with said siblings? Whether you're the oldest or not. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Joe, I didn't see you raise your hand right there. I don't know about that. (laughs) To kind of give you a little bit of context growing up, I grew up in a family of nine. I was the oldest of seven kids. I have four younger brothers and two sisters. It goes boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, boy, boy. You might feel a little sympathy right now for my sisters that they had to grow up with all those brothers in the family. And we're all pretty close in age as well. We're about two years apart, except for the fourth and the fifth one is about three years apart. So as you can imagine, in a household with that many people close in age, a lot goes on. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of noise happening. There's a lot of events going on. You name it, it's straight out chaos. And right now, I'd just like to give a shout out to my parents. If they happen to be watching, you guys deserve Lifetime Achievement Awards for what you were able to do. (laughs) Now, in the household that big... We were super competitive, whether it was board games, card games, video games. We are all active in sports as well, so we go at each other in the driveway. Whether it's uh, we're playing basketball, we're on the golf course, we're on the ball diamond, we got super competitive. And one other area we were super competitive is winning arguments. We always wanted to be right, no matter what. We didn't care what happened. We had a win-at-all-cost mentality when it came down to it. It would get so heated at the dinner table that our dad would have to be, stop, enough, shh, and then we'd start over again. But one of those things that, one of the arguments I constantly had, and it happened to be with my eldest sister, Abby. We'd always have the argument when my parents were gone, who's in charge? When you have, to kind of give you a little bit of background on her, she's a very type A personality. I'm a type A personality. So you can imagine having the two oldest siblings being the same kind of person, they clash a lot. And so her and I would clash. We found out at a family gathering actually back in January that some babysitters who would come when my parents were gone for multiple days said, yeah, we would take two kids, we would split them up. If we had issues, we told them to go to this sibling, we told them to go to this sibling, so that way you felt like you were both in charge and got a fair shake. Kudos to them that they figured that out. That was brilliant. But anyways... When mom and dad weren't home and it was just us two, we'd often fight a lot about that. Who is in charge? We would call mom and dad and say, mom, dad, who's in charge? And they'd be like, stop fighting. And when they didn't resolve that, we would just keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. Eventually, a lot of those times, it would turn into a shouting match. It would turn into a shouting match, and we would start spewing hurtful things at each other, verbally low blows all the time. Eventually, we would walk away from that and we'd end up hurt. We'd hurt each other in the process because we were more focused on winning the argument of who is right or who is in charge than understanding the soul behind it. The question I like to pose is, do we ever do that with people in our own lives? Whether that be family or friends, people who are not Christians, our neighbors, do we ever do that where we have a mentality of winning at all cost? Do we care more about winning than we care about the soul? As we go into part six of the four people series, we learn that Jesus is for different people, different people who don't agree with him, maybe politically, who don't agree, who may not be a a social or who will be a social outcast. 
As we dive into the story, I want to take a look at the story of the woman in the well in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 4 or follow along the YouVersion Bible app. The verses will be on the screen. To kind of give you a little bit of starting out with this, Jesus starts out on his way to Galilee. He chooses to go through Samaria. Keep that in the back of your mind right there. So we're going to pick up at verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now, a couple things to unpack right there. Sychar. We're going to go back to the Old Testament a little bit. Back in the olden days, in the Old Testament, we see that this Sychar town is actually used to be called Shechem. And Shechem is where a lot of significant things took place in Israel's history. Starting out with Abraham, we see God appear in Genesis chapter 12 of the promise that is to come, that promise that Abraham will be the father of many nations. In Genesis chapter 33, we see that Jacob builds an altar to the Lord. Last but not least, Joshua. We see in Joshua chapter 24, the famous quote that we maybe see in our houses, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that is in Joshua chapter 24. So there's a lot of history in just this town of Sychar, and we see Jesus come back to it. And for me personally, I like seeing the interwovenness between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It kind of brings it together a little bit there. So there's a little bit of history on the city of Sychar. Let's move on to verse 7. Verse 7. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Keep that also in the back of your mind. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's been an age-old tension for centuries, the Jews and the Samaritans. They had gone at each other. And to kind of give you a little bit of perspective, the Samaritans are actually an inter, uh, occurred because the Babylonians back in Israel's time, when they took them into captivity they left behind the lowest classes because they didn't want them to intermarry with their people as well. So the lowest classes stayed behind, they were left behind, and then the Assyrians, who the Israelites had an enemy with, moved into town and they intermarried. Now the Samaritans, and they became the Samaritans. Now the Samaritans, they believed in the first five books of of the Bible, the Law of Moses, but then the Assyrians brought along their superstitions and their rituals, and they actually developed a worship place at Mount Gerizon. Now, here's where the Jews kind of come back into play. They thought of them as the lowest classes. So what they ended up doing is in 728 BC, they went and they burned down the Samaritan temple. As you can start, you can kind of gather, that does not sit well with them. So the Samaritans, they come back and they actually go into the Jewish temple and they drop a bag of bones in there. They spread it all over the temple. So we see these two people groups constantly in tension with each other. They're constantly bashing heads, arguing. And we see this play out right here where the Samaritan woman goes and points out that, yeah, there is some tension right there. You do not, it's like it's so uncommon for her to have an interaction with a Jewish person like that. As we move on to verse 10 through 15, We see Jesus goes on to talk about the living water. He does not have a bucket, so the woman says, how can you draw water? And Jesus talks about how he has living water. 
how he has this living water that you will not thirst anymore. And the woman goes, yes, I want that water. Where can I get it? We'll pick up in verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Let's pause for a moment. Let's say you're out and about. You're in Meyer, Sam's Club, Costco, you name it. You're going down the cookie aisle. You're picking up some Oreos. You're kind of going about your business. And then all of a sudden, this individual comes out of nowhere and tells you everything that you have done wrong. Every, all the baggage in your past. Uh, confronts you about how you're a liar, you're a cheater, you're sleeping around. How would that probably sit with you? You'd probably be like, oh, that's, that's awkward. I've never met you in my life and you just told me all of this. We probably have the same reaction that the woman has here in this next verse. As we move on to verse 19, it says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Watch what she does. She deflects. She goes back into an argument of something that's been plaguing them for centuries, something that's more common, something that's easy to talk about because it's been going on for so long. There's this tension right there that she would rather talk about the political differences than face what she's been confronted with. I'd imagine we'd probably do the same thing as well. If we were confronted with our sin, we'd probably try to deflect into that situation. She wanted to get away from the uncomfortableness that had just occurred in that moment. Why? Why do we struggle with something like that? Why do we struggle with uncomfortable situations? Why do we deflect? Because it's easier for us to deflect than it is to face it head on. And we do this in the church. We do this in the church. We often deflect. We often push it to a different subject when an uncomfortable thing pops up. What are some topics that we maybe do that with? Well, let's start out with the church, with money. I'm sure some of you have had this happen. You invite someone to church, and they bring it, you bring them in, and the pastor's preaching about money. You're like, oh, crap, I brought them on the wrong Sunday. <laughs> Hope they come back some other week. But money is an uncomfortable subject because it involves our personal finance. It involves our everyday lives. We don't go up to someone and you ask them, how much do you make? That's taboo. You don't do that. I wouldn't recommend doing that as well. But we, we often deflect from that because it's very uncomfortable. And I can tell you, preachers do not like preaching on money. You can ask my own dad. He hates it. Kyle, same thing. He does not like preaching on money. It's, it happens. But that's a very uncomfortable topic because it requires sacrifice and confronting stuff that we don't like to talk about. Another thing is baptism. Weirdly enough, this is divided churches as well. I grew up in the CRC context. I grew up where there was infant baptism and then profession of faith. Now, at the story, we are a part of the Wesleyan denomination, and that involves child dedication, as we saw last week, which is so awesome. It was so cool to see Dory up here and the Van Mittendorps. That was awesome. Uh, and then we have adult baptism. Neither one's wrong. Neither one is not a salvation issue right in that moment. But 
that has actually been the cause of some splitting up of churches in the past. There's many other topics we can go on, but the reality is Christianity is one of the most divided religions in all of the world. As we take a look at the top, we have at the top of the church chain, we have the Western Church, the Eastern Church, and the Restorationist Church. Beneath the Western Church is the Roman Catholic Church, and then the Protestant side of things. And then underneath the Protestant side of things, we have Adventist, Anabaptist, Angelican, Baptist, Evangelical, Holiness, Lutheran, Methodist, Moravian, Pentecostal, Quaker, and Reformed. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's many more that go underneath that. And the reality is, as churches, instead of working on our relationships with others, we've made it about the issues. We've made it about the issues instead of the relationship. And a lot of times, instead of going into relationship, they decided, no, we'd rather do our own thing, and they split off just because of disagreements instead of working on it out. And that's just the church right there. What are some other topics that we maybe don't like to talk about? Race. That's been a hot-button topic in the last year, more so than not. This past year, uh, we, uh, there's a buddy of mine from college, and we hung out all the time. We went to intramurals. We go out to lunch. We hang out. And then he stayed in town for a little while, then moved back to his home state of Arizona just this past year. But he was back in town, and he had come back into town maybe a couple months after the whole George Floyd incident had occurred. And so we sat down at lunch at Buffalo Wild Wings. And for me, I was genuinely curious. I, I wanted to learn what his experience was. I wanted to learn where he was coming from because I had never really faced a lot of that stuff. I asked him point blank, have you experienced racism here in West Michigan? And he said, yes. Of course, the answer is, I asked him, well, what happened? As anybody would want to know. And he brought up an answer of dating. I didn't even think about that for a second, but dating. When he was in college, he was dating this girl, and she was a white woman, he was a black man. And everywhere they would go, East Town, Downtown, Meyer, you name it, he would always get funny looks all the time when he was with just her. People would look at him a little bit different. That's uncomfortable to deal with a little bit. You kind of sit back a little bit and you're just like, oh my gosh, your heart breaks in that moment. Your heart breaks because someone has experienced something like this and we have not. What about politics? That's another topic. I don't need to go too far into that one. Mask, no mask, mask, vaccine, no vaccine, social distancing, no social distancing. That's just in the last year. That's not counting any political party differences or anything like that. But the reality is we've had it where when we have a difference, our culture has told us disassociate with that person, split from that person. It's more about the issue than the relationship. And we see it in the church too. In our teaching team meeting this past week uh, down at Frontline, I was talking with Pastor Brad down at New Life. And one of the things that he said that stuck out to me a little bit was, people will leave the pulpit for their political party, but won't leave the political party for the pulpit. We've made it more about the issues than we have the relationships. And that's just the external dialogue, Right? We have the internal dialogue as well with the Holy Spirit. Because in that moment, the woman at the well was convicted. 
I would say there are many times that the Holy Spirit convicts us, but then we try to change that internal dialogue to something more comforting. Instead of facing our sin and the Holy Spirit convicting us maybe about our sexual brokenness or our lying or our cheating habits, whatever it may be, we change it to something like, oh, look how I've done this. Look how I've done this. Trying to overshadow what has gone on with our lives. And we see this happen with the woman at the well. She deflects. She didn't want to face what was going on. She instead brought up differences. I think, but it's beautiful, though, we see with Jesus. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, Christ has different doors for entering into different people's souls. Into some, he enters by the understanding, into many, by the affections. To some, he comes by the way of fear, to another, by that of hope. And to this woman, he came by way of her conscience. See, where she brought up division, the Father brought up reconciliation, redemption, and relationship with the Father. She tried to argue against her conscience, but Jesus did not take the bait in that moment. He did not take the bait. See, because in that moment, regardless of her past, regardless of the differences, regardless of the issues that have plagued, regardless of her social outcast and uh, uh, her standing in society, Jesus was more interested in winning a soul than an argument. In that moment, Jesus was more interested in winning a soul than an argument. It's crazy as we look at that story, as we look at it and we go into verses 21 through 26, he goes on to say, you know, there's a time that we will not worship just in a Jewish temple. No, this is the time when we get to worship all together as the body of believers. He foreshadows the book of Acts when every church and every tribe and tongue comes together and worships. And it's so beautiful because she is forever changed because of that. See, Jesus displayed so much love and a sense of security that she felt safe with him even when her sin was exposed. And it's important for the followers of Jesus, we do the same to give people a safe place to confess their sins, repent, and put their trust in Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't tolerate her sin. I want to make that very clear. He didn't say, go keep in what you're doing. Go keep it on, keep it on. No, he said, go no, and sin no more. We see that with the woman and the adult, uh, who's caught in the act of adultery. Instead of saying, no, keep doing what you're doing, she said, he said, go and sin no more. See, the Samaritan woman was so impressed, even though she had been just called out by the love of Jesus, that she now saw out the same fellow villagers that had deemed her as a social outcast. Because Jesus took the time to sit down with her and have a relationship with her. Verse 27. Now remember how I said the disciples were out to lunch, essentially. <laughs> We're going to pick up at verse 27, and I love what the message version says about this. Just then his disciples came back, they were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of woman. No one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. I heard it once said that a Samaritan woman grasped what he said with fervor that came from an awareness of her real need. The transaction was fascinating. She has come with a bucket he sent her back with a spring of living water. She had come as a reject. 
He sent her back being accepted by God himself. She came wounded. He sent her back whole. She came laden with questions. He sent her back as a source for answers. She came living a life of quiet desperation. She ran back overflowing with hope. The disciples missed it all. It was lunchtime for them. See, the disciples missed this whole interaction. They missed this radical transformation just by interacting with someone who was different. The disciples all grew up in that Jewish culture right there where the Samaritans are evil, you know, and, and they think that the Messiah who is come, uh, who's supposed to come back is supposed to deliver them from the Roman Empire, supposed to be that savior, that, that righteous warrior that's supposed to deliver them. And so for Jesus to be interacting with Samaritan woman, someone who is culturally different, someone who's radically different, someone who they've battled for centuries, is mind-blowing to them. They're, they're thinking, Jesus was risking his reputation for this woman. What is he doing? Jesus was risking his reputation for that because it was more important to win a soul in that moment. And the question I like to ask is how we risked our reputation for the gospel. Have we risked our reputation for that kid who's sitting at the lunch table alone, who may be eating alone every single day, who may not have all the fancy clothes, who may be wearing the same clothes every day? Have we risked our reputation? Because in all reality, if we went over there, our friends would probably think of us a little bit differently. Our friends would think of us in terms of why is he sitting with that person? And they may think, oh, He's just like that person and not associate. What about the coworker who's eating alone in the lunchroom or the coworker who is kind of deemed an oddball or a coworker who maybe walks around the office with bare feet? Been there. <laughs> <laughs> what would happen if we interacted with them? You know, what would the whispers be around the office? How have we risked our reputation? This last week when I was preparing for the sermon, last week Monday, I woke up and I had this absolute knot in my stomach. It really sucked. For a Monday morning, I'm not a big fan of Mondays, and to start off Monday with something like that, it was not fun. In that moment, I realized I was guilty of the exact same thing I just mentioned right there. I was convicted of all of that. I've been there. I've done that where I have not sat at the lunch table with that person. I have not interacted with a coworker with bare feet. I've been there. And to be honest, sitting up here and preaching about that and having to preach about that, I was convicted. I was convicted in that moment and to be honest, it sucked. It sucked to face that. It sucked to come up here and preach about that when I have been guilty of all of that. But here's the beautiful part, and here's what Jesus does. When she was faced with that, Jesus brought up the reconciliation and the redemption. He brought up grace. We have grace through Jesus Christ that we can continue on moving forward regardless of our past life, regardless of what's been going on in our lives. Jesus gives us a fresh start each and every day. And he gives us a chance to keep going and keep going and have another chance to interact with that coworker, interact with that kid at the lunchroom. And the reality is, 
her life, the Samaritan woman, was radically changed in that town because Jesus sought her out. Jesus was more about the relationship in that moment. Have we done the same? Have we restored our reputation for the gospel? For someone that may not be considered like us, that may be different than us. It's so beautiful to watch that story because you can take many different facets from that. You can take many different facets of, you know, how the living water breathes life into her and how she was an outsider. And yet, because of that one interaction, she went back into the town, the same town that deemed her as an outcast, and said, look, come and see this man that knows everything about me. And forever, because of that, a town was changed. I'd like to close with a little bit of a story here. And Josh, you can come back up. This past, oh, let's see, past fall, I had an opportunity to teach at the UFP Business School. Uh, I work at Universal Forest Products. I'm an IT systems analyst on a day-to-day basis. Shocker, I'm not a preacher. <laughs> um, but... One of the cool things is that the business school does is that it gives people who are not looking at the traditional college route, who are looking to maybe change their careers, it gives them an opportunity to learn about the business side of things and get a job with UFP for free. There's no cost to this college. And during the semester, I had 25 students, and I lined out, laid out the expectations very clear at the beginning of the semester. I laid out the expectations of, you know, you're supposed to turn your assignments in on time, you're supposed to participate in group, uh, group projects, whatever it may be. And I had this student who just didn't turn in assignments. He was constantly late, he was not turning in assignments, he wasn't participating, he wasn't doing anything. And it drove me nuts. <laughs> One day after class, he come, he says, hey, professor, can, can I talk with you? I was like, okay. He goes on to explain that in the past couple years, he's had to lay down one of his parents due to dementia. Another parent has dementia and is currently slipping quicker and quicker. He's working two other jobs just so he can provide for himself in that, in that time. Meanwhile, in my head, I went in with preconceived notions that he's just a slacker. He's just, you know, not taking it seriously. And after that moment, after he came to me and after we talked, my heart just broke. My heart broke in that moment because he's going through something else, something incredible that I can't even imagine in my life. And he has to go with it on a day-to-day battle. And we think about that with people in our everyday lives. We don't know the battles that are going on behind the face. We don't know the battles that are going on behind home. We don't know the battles of how they are struggling to make ends meet. We sometimes assume, we come in with preconceived notions that they're just not with it sometimes. But the reality is after that interaction, my perspective was changed. And the same thing goes for the Samaritan woman. 
After that one interaction, her life was changed because Jesus took the time and sat down with her. Someone who is radically different than her, or him, excuse me, radically different, a social outcast, and offered forgiveness and offered a new way to get out. And it's so beautiful. See, Jesus was more interested in winning souls than an argument. And we can probably guarantee that there is someone different than you that you probably need to be more focused on winning a soul than an argument in our everyday lives. There's probably a coworker that you're thinking of or maybe that there's someone, a friend, or someone who's politically different than you or whatever it may be that you need to be more focused on them. Our culture wants us to divide. Our culture constantly says, if you aren't the same as us, get away from us. Don't associate with us. Our culture wants us to be divided. But church, we need to have the interaction that Jesus had. We need to be more focused on the relationships than the issues. We need to focus on risking our reputation for the lost, risking our reputation for those who may be different than us because you never know what that one interaction might do for them. This week, I want to challenge you. I want you to do three things. I want you to have an actual conversation, not just a, hey, how you doing? How's this? With someone who may be different racially, belief system, politically, whatever it may be, I want you to have a conversation because you might learn something that you didn't know before. You might have an interaction with someone that changes their life forever, all because you took the time to sit down with them and learn where they are coming from. See, Jesus loves all of us. Jesus sacrificed his life for us so that we can live with him eternally. And it's so beautiful. And we want other people to share, have that same experience as well. But if we're sitting on our rear ends and we're not learning, if we're not reaching out to people who are different, that may never happen. They may never get to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for all of us. Jesus was more interested in winning souls than an argument. So are we. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just pray right now that your Holy Spirit would convict us in this moment. We ask that the Holy Spirit would convict us of what's gone on in our lives, that if we have sin, that we may be able to confront it. We just thank you for your grace in those moments as well. We just pray right now that we would get rid of our preconceived notions, that we would get rid of the biases that we have, get rid of the junk that we have, so that way we can go and reach people for the gospel. We pray that you would lay someone on our hearts who may be different than us, who may have a different background, who may be a social outcast, who may be culturally different, who may be politically different, whatever it may be, Lord. We just pray that you lay someone on our hearts that we can go and share the gospel with them, that we would have the courage to go and share the gospel with people because, Jesus, you were for different people. 
You were for the lost, the broken, the outcast. And we pray that we have that same attitude as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.